Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Bill Hayes. He's the author of Insomniac City and The Anatomist, as well as an upcoming book on the history of exercise called Sweat. He was the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in nonfiction, and he's a frequent contributor to the New York Times. He's also a photographer. His collection of street photography was recently published in a book called How New York Breaks Your Heart. And he's co-editor of each Oliver Sacks book released after his death. He joins us today from New York to talk about his latest book, which I absolutely loved, called How We Live Now, Scenes from the Pandemic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this book is a very slender volume of vignettes and photographs from early on in the pandemic. Can you... First, tell us what time period this is written across. Yeah, it really covers the first 100 days of the pandemic. The bulk of the book was written between mid-March and mid-May. And actually, I thought that was going to be the whole time span of the book. And we went into production at the end of May. And then the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and protests animated, exploded in New York City, literally in my own neighborhood. And I added a postscript at the end of the book addressing that amazing moment um, in the first week of June. So it really goes from mid-March to June. Yeah, it's amazing turnaround time for a book. Yeah, we pushed really hard. And, you know, the, the idea from the very beginning was to try to capture a moment in time, the early days of the pandemic. And then they, my publisher, Bloomsbury, worked hard and pushed hard, especially in the middle of a pandemic, to get the book out as soon as possible. So it just came out this past week. Yeah, it's such a feat. As a person who's interviewed authors for over a decade, I I was very surprised at the nimbleness <laughs> of their ability to get this book out so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And having, having photographs in the book made it even a little more complicated in terms of production, design and production. Yeah. But I'm really, really happy with the result. Yeah, it's really, really great. So you start this book thinking about the last times, the last time you shook hands with a stranger, the last time you saw people dancing. What last time stands out to you most? Gosh, great question. Um, yeah, last time I shook hands with a stranger, I think, really, which is the opening of, a, of the book. That seems like some such a simple act where you meet someone, you say hello, you introduce yourself, and you shake hands. And because I'm a street photographer, I am out in the streets of New York meeting people, approaching them. My method has always been from the beginning over the past decade to approach people and ask their permission. May I take your picture? So I'm not a street photographer with a telephoto lens or <laughs> just catching people unawares. I just feel it's uh, that's just part of my style. I really call it more like street portraiture. So that simple act of just shaking hands, um, which we um, learned very early on we shouldn't be doing, and the introduction of the elbow bump and other things. Mm -hmm. When I have seen people shaking hands on the street, it's, it's almost surprising. Or to see people kissing hello on the cheek and probably their spouses or friends and it's fine but it's just not something we're seeing these days things have changed so quickly virtually overnight that's one of the really incredible things about this period of time and, and really what i tried to capture how things have changed virtually overnight not just in new york of course but all over the world yeah and i think you really succeeded what's interesting about reading your book now that we're in 
August, we're recording this in August, it'll come out in the very beginning of September, is that even this time feels like a memory that you're writing about. Yeah, I know. If I had gotten this commission right now, if my publisher had said, when you write a book about the early days of the pandemic or your first earliest experience of it, I don't know that I could have done it. Because already, yes, it seems like a distant memory. March and April, first part of May, very, very different experience here in New York than where, where we are today. And uh, what I tried to do with this book was to write it in real time. I think I started writing in mid-March, second or third week of March, and then, as I said, went through the first week of June. And I, yeah, I look at it now and I think, I can't believe I got that down on paper. Yeah, it's great, though, that you captured it. You also talk about the last time you fell in love, mm -hmm. which is an interesting framing because we have so many people who listen to the show who are single and by themselves. Right. People are in the summertime have been venturing out and seeing friends more, and some countries are less locked down. Mm -hmm. But there really is that sense of lost love, either lost love opportunities because you're alone or... What would you respond to that? Yeah, I um, my partner Oliver Sacks died five years ago, actually five years ago tomorrow. And for the most part, I've been single during this whole period, this whole past five years. And then on Christmas night, 2019, just last Christmas, I had a kind of very romantic love at first sight kind of experience. And uh, there was a beginning of a romance before the pandemic hit. It was still pretty early in the romance. Um, and we were both busy with our own lives and just getting to know each other. And then the pandemic really hit and required social distancing and a very quick change in relations. So yeah, early in the book, I reminisce, reminisce about the last time I fell in love. And those early days of getting to know Jesse, his name is Jesse. And that becomes a little bit of a through line in this book as you follow the two of us navigating the pandemic, continuing to try to see each other. You know, there were months where we didn't actually see each other physically, but we were texting and he came under my window and we talked from my window. He was on the sidewalk. Um, we had some socially distanced walks. But otherwise, yeah, I, I've been living here alone in my apartment, dealing with that kind of isolation, which is, of course, very different from those who've been together with their families or children or a partner or a spouse. I'm curious, since that happened right around Christmas time, right before 2020 begins, mm -hmm. do you think it made it easier or harder to get through the early months of the pandemic having met him? I think it made it easier. You know, it was it was really nice to have that connection, to be still getting to know someone, even via, you know, our modern contemporary technology like texting and email. But then there was also something very old fashioned about taking a walk, a socially distanced walk that and we didn't hug or kiss because we didn't know if it was safe. You know, before the pandemic, he'd been working in a gym and also in a bar as a bouncer. And keep in mind, this is back in March when, or early April, when there was no testing and we didn't really know. And I'm living in New York City where thousands and thousands of people are getting sick and we both knew people who were sick. And then I, as a writer, but also as a street photographer, was out on the streets a lot 
before the pandemic hit. I didn't know myself, you know. So there was something also kind of sweetly old-fashioned about getting to know someone, not just physically, not just sexually, but, um, you know, almost uh, in the old-fashioned way, like letters, but in this case via texts and, and some walks and things like that and phone calls. Yeah, it's the revival of even with the way that people are playing games and stuff now. Like it's the revival of the Victorian era dating and like parlor games and stuff. Yeah, yeah. One thing we did was the uh, we would both do the New York Times spelling bee, which mm -hmm. is a kind of word game in the New York Times, and we would go back and forth on that and give each other hints and clues. And then things did change in June. You know, by that time, the curve was really, had really come down. Things were much better in New York City. Testing was more widely available and was offered to people like me or Jesse who weren't on the front lines. You know, in the beginning, testing was recommended only for people who were frontline workers or, or had symptoms. That was opened up and testing in New York has been, I think at least, extremely successful and well-organized. We both got tested together, which was a kind of romantic thing in its own way. And um, that allowed us to know that we could uh, have our own little pod. Yeah, that's great. And then sort of start a relationship over again. So it's been in all different stages. And um, so that's just one thread in this in this book, How We Live Now. Yeah. Another thread that you have is, is about your partner, Oliver Sachs. Mm -hmm. And what do you think he would have made of this time if he were still here? Gosh, I think about that all the time, and I get asked about it frequently. As I mentioned, tomorrow, the 30th of August, is the fifth anniversary of his death, so he's very much up in mind today. I think he would have thought multiple things. You know, he was a brilliant neurologist who kind of made his name or early in his career worked with patients who were survivors of the encephalitis lethargica pandemic of the early 20th century, which either killed or affected something like 5 million people. And I think he would have seen some parallels between that pandemic and the current pandemic, would not have been surprised at the range of symptoms, including scary neurological symptoms or very unusual neurological symptoms that some people have had with COVID-19, much more complex for some people than simply a respiratory illness or flu. I think on a personal basis, Oliver would have been scared, naturally. He would be 87 today, and so in a very vulnerable category himself. Um, and he was also, by his own admission, I'm not outing him here, he was also by his own admission a bit of a hypochondriac, always washing his hands long before this pandemic. So I think he would have been very nervous about it. He would have been horrified by the way the Trump administration has handled this pandemic. Really horrified, I think. And uh, concerned especially about conditions in nursing homes where so many people have died in the U.S. and elsewhere. You know, Oliver Sacks, although he was so well known, he spent most of his career working in the back wards of hospitals and in nursing homes and with elderly patients. And I think he would have been extremely, extremely troubled by um, how COVID-19 spread through nursing homes and killed so many elderly people. And I think he would have also been writing about it or found a way to write about it. He was always writing. And there is a quote from Oliver that comes early in the book that kind of did inspire me to write this book. And in a little way, it inspired the title, How We Live Now, where in his final year, 
in this apartment, sitting right at this desk where I'm sitting, he was working on a piece of writing and uh, he said to me, the most we can do is to write intelligently, creatively, critically, evocatively about what it is like living in the world at this time. And that's a, a quote that's in the book and is always in my mind and what I tried to accomplish with How We Live Now. And you did. Thank you. You say that that's a quote that's always in your mind and I've never met him, but there's a quote from him that's always in my mind that was from his the final essay that he wrote in the New York Times, I think around February in the year that he died. And he ended that article by saying, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet, and that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. And I I love the gratitude and I also love the wistfulness in how he wrote that. Yeah. Whenever I think about the state of the world or the pandemic or or even the fact that we all have to die those words often run through my head that, that I have been a sentient being in this beautiful world. It's so beautiful. So, so beautiful. Yeah. And I love that he calls himself a thinking animal. I mean, it says a lot about Oliver because he really felt this kind of fellowship or brotherhood with other beings, other creatures. And we are very lucky to be sentient beings, as he said. Yeah, yeah. What else from him always runs through your head? What other things he says? But is there one other thing that just pops into your head all the time? <laughs> uh, one other thing he said, um, oh gosh, I just think about him all the time, um, mostly as an inspiration for, for writing. You know, it really was because of Oliver, even before we were involved as a couple romantically, that he instructed me, <laughs> you must keep a journal. Uh, I had just moved to New York. I moved to New York in 2009, 11 years ago from San Francisco. And I had written and published three books, but I was in a period of my life where I was kind of disenchanted with publishing, stuck and bored with writing perhaps, and I really wasn't writing. And uh, we met in person, although we had corresponded by letter before that. And uh, he asked me, what are you working on? What are you writing? And I said, mm, not much, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I have bought a camera and I'm starting to take pictures. And he looked at me and he said, you must keep a journal. And uh, we were in a restaurant with a paper tablecloth cover. And he was so serious that he gave me a felt pen. And I wrote that down on the piece of paper. Oliver Sacks says, you must keep a journal. And I dated it and tore off the piece of paper. And I still have that to this day. And I did indeed start keeping a journal. And uh, I have continued to keep that journal from 2009 up until now. Unlike Oliver, Oliver actually kept journals, moleskin journals and sort of beautiful books that people would give him, friends and strangers. And there are now, if you can believe this, especially for those of you who are journal keepers out there, there are about 700 journals by Oliver Sacks in his archive, all handwritten. And someday there will be a selected journals of Oliver Sacks, whereas I, for the most part, have kept my journal on my computer or laptop. That's just how prose flows easily for me. But uh, I did draw from my journal to write this book, not only for the real-time experience of going through the pandemic, but recollecting memories and experiences and encounters of life in New York before COVID-19. Hi, Katie here, interjecting briefly. This is the last episode of the current season. Next week, we kick off season eight. 
a way to mark the coming of fall. If you've come to love the show over the years, or months, or days, if you've just found us, support it in your own way. If you like to write, write a review about the show on Apple Podcasts, and Tiffany might even use it in an Instagram post. If you love to talk, tell a friend about us. Tell your family members. If you have the means, donate. Your financial support is vital and a major compliment. There's a donate button at our website, thebittersweetlife.net, or go to Patreon for extra content and prizes. Patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. There are links in the show notes. And if you donate, you will get a thank you note handwritten by one of us in the mail, along with some prizes. And one more thing, our Pollyanna episode is coming up. Tell us about the little silver linings that you've found in 2020. The little twinklings of good things. Send us an email or a voice memo to bittersweetlife at mail.com. There are links to all of these things in the show notes. Thanks so much for letting us hear your voice in all these different ways. I love how your book flows back and forth between the past and the present. It's interesting because for an episode we did a couple months ago, right around the time when you're writing this book, we did an episode called A Day in the Life and listeners from all over the world sent in just a snapshot of what was happening and where they were in their day. And one of our listeners sent in a sound from Midtown Manhattan that was just amazing. It was my favorite clip of the whole show because it was just birds singing. Oh, wow. Recorded right in the heart of the city while she's just sitting by the window at her apartment. And it just stands out so epically because normally you wouldn't even be able to hear them. You wouldn't. Wow, that's so amazing to hear because there's a passage in my book where um, I did hear birds singing in April. And this was, for me at least, very unusual. I live in the West Village. I live across from a gas station, one of the very few gas stations even left in Manhattan. And it's pretty noisy. <laughs> or, or it was before the pandemic. Honking, cars, traffic construction grew used to the noise and then with the pandemic you know really within a few days of the stay-at-home restriction and the lockdown it got very quiet and i could hear birds what do you think of that quiet as a new yorker well there was great beauty in it in a lot of ways there were moments of grace and beauty that i have seen and noticed and paid attention to throughout this whole period that has helped me appreciate new york in a new way on the other hand, sometimes it was kind of eerie. I mean, for it to be so quiet that I could hear a single voice across the street or a conversation across the street, that was just uh, so unusual. It made me realize how few people were really out there and how few cars and drivers and all construction, of course, had stopped. There was a big building being built across the street from me, behind me, and that was always very noisy and that just went silent. I loved it in a lot of ways. I thought it was beautiful, but sometimes it was it was eerie. Yeah, it's like being on a deserted planet or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another image you have in your book is of uh, skateboarders going up the middle of the road, which, of course, we can all picture that sound or hear that sound in our head. Yeah. I live right on 8th Avenue uh, in the West Village, and I can see from here, which is about 13th Street up till Central Park South. It was, for a time there, just almost entirely empty. Hmm. with people walking in the middle of the street and skateboarders and bicyclists taking over the avenue. And there was something kind of 
lovely about it, but also strange. Yeah. Well, why don't we let everyone hear an example of what kind of writing we're talking about? Okay. It's really exactly what we've just been talking about. Good. Good segue. Yeah. <laughs> about the middle of the book. I live kitty corner from a mobile gas station, one of the very few gas stations left in Manhattan. For the past decade, I've heard so much honking, arguing, drunken yelling in the middle of the night, fist fighting even, emanating from that tiny piece of New York real estate, home to four precious gas pumps. What's so interesting but bizarre right now at 6.31 p.m. on a Friday night when there would normally be a long line of cars lined up to get gas before driving home is how quiet it is. It is so quiet. You can hear a bird singing. You can hear a baby crying. You can hear a single voice rising up from 8th Avenue. You can hear a bus idling near Horatio. You can hear a conversation right under my window. You can hear a guy at a gas pump across the street talking on his phone. You can hear a kid on a scooter in the park. You can hear a person with a walker walking, the walker scraping the sidewalk. You can hear a madman ranting and raving somewhere. You can hear someone hammering something someplace uptown. You can hear delivery guys bike bells. You can hear someone whistling as he walks. You can hear yourself crying by yourself. And in the enforced solitude and silence, you can sometimes hear yourself replaying moments in your life. Things said or not said, done or not done, love expressed or not expressed, all the gratitude you've ever received, all the gratitude you've ever felt. That's beautiful. Thank you. How different is it now in New York? It's different. It's much more active. I'm so happy to say that we've just successfully come together and brought the curve down dramatically. I mean, there was, as you know, a time in April when there were 800 to 1,000 people a day dying of COVID-19 here in New York a day. Although that number seems kind of abstract, it was very real because New York is so densely populated. Everyone knew someone who was sick or had been sick or who had died or a family member had died. And if you didn't, I mean, just in the West Village, which is probably one of the least affected neighborhoods in all of New York City, there were giant refrigerated morgue trucks parked just down the street where there was an ER to store the bodies. So it was impossible to deny that this had hit this city in a really horrible way. Now, today, it's um, much more active. We're down to something like as few as three to 10 deaths a day in the entire state of New York, entire state. And um, it's different because, of course, a lot of shops and restaurants and bars and retail outlets closed and have closed for good, which is very tragic. And yet others have adapted and survived. There's, I think, at least incredible compliance with mask wearing in New York. I have started taking the subway again. I didn't take the subway for about, uh, I think about three months, but I've started again and I feel completely safe. Everyone's wearing a mask and socially distances and the stations and cars are cleaner than ever, but it's a very different New York. Um, it looks different from my window. It looks different on the street, but um, people are adapting. People often in our generation, I think, want to compare the pandemic to the HIV AIDS crisis. 
Right. Which you talk a little bit about in the book, but what do you make of that comparison? Yeah, it's a really tricky comparison. And um, yes, I lived through the entire pandemic. I moved to San Francisco at, gosh, I guess I was 24 in 1985, came out as a gay man. It was really the height of the AIDS pandemic in the U.S., and especially among the gay community. And I also worked in AIDS in nonprofits for years and also worked in AIDS here in New York. And I should add that, you know, the AIDS pandemic continues. There's still thousands of people getting infected a day. There's still no AIDS vaccine. And 32 million people to date, 32 million have died of AIDS. And yet these are very different pandemics. I think the thing that's most striking to me when I think about the two is the fact that with COVID-19, it's so contagious that we cannot connect with one another physically. Like we talked about Jesse, you know, I, we really didn't connect physically at all for months and, or shake hands with people or give someone a friendly kiss on the cheek that in fact, we have had to isolate ourselves in our homes, even quarantine in our homes and stay as far away from people as possible. And yet with AIDS, it was sort of the opposite. The AIDS activism of ACT UP took place. I would go to those meetings in San Francisco in very crowded, hot, humid, sweaty rooms, packed full of people working on AIDS activism, funerals and memorials. People could come together to mourn the dead or be at the hospital bedside of someone who was dying. I remember the iconic moment when Princess Diana visited a hospital ward and either hugged or touched shook hands with a person with AIDS. And that was such an important moment in the AIDS pandemic. She was saying that you can't catch AIDS just by touching someone or uh, being in close contact with someone. You can in fact hug someone. So the contracting of the illnesses are very different. I think it's one of the strangest and hardest things about COVID. It's so alien to us as human beings that we have to isolate ourselves and not connect physically uh, with our fellow human beings and even family members sometimes. Yeah, you never realize how many people you hug (laughs) when you don't until it's not an option anymore. Yeah, and how common that was, even with people you might not know that well. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, that you would greet them by hugging and maybe even a kiss on the cheek. Yeah, Uh, yeah. So that's that's very strange. What would you say has been the, the biggest loss for you personally during this period of time? I think the biggest loss really is that lack of connection with friends and family. You know, I have not left New York since the beginning of the year. I have family in Seattle and um, a lot of friends in the Bay Area. I used to live there. So where I might normally travel to Washington State or the Bay Area during the summer, I, I haven't done that. And even friends in the city, you know, we've had to be really cautious about getting together. I have done course, some distance walks and picnics. Um, And now we're lucky to have outdoor dining in New York so you can see a friend for dinner. But that loss of actual connection is something that I have missed a lot. Of course, we can text and phone call and Zoom and FaceTime, but there's really no substitute for having some friends over for a drink and just catching up and laughing and that sort of thing, which uh, I hope we can return to. Yeah. And I'm sure we will at some point. We're going to do a 
an episode in uh, in the coming weeks that we're calling the Pollyanna episode, where we're going to try to figure out the good things um, that have come of these things, like uh, get listeners to submit their ideas of good things that have happened. What mm-hmm. has been a positive for you? You can inspire us. Well, someone mentioned the other day, this isn't my thought, but I thought it was such a good thing to point out. <laughs> she said, New Yorkers have gotten used to waiting in line. <laughs> and have gotten more patient. Because if you go to the grocery store, I go to a little grocery store on 14th Street, it can be a little bit crowded, but they have it set up for social distancing and you have to wait longer than you did. You have to wait in line and um, observe the distancing rules. So that's one thing. Um, I think for myself personally, as a writer and a photographer, I've gotten to know New York in a different way. I, for a decade, was out there doing really street portraiture, photographing people right on the street, approaching them, coming in quite close. I usually use a 35 millimeter lens, which means I have to be pretty close to to get a good picture. But with the pandemic, and especially to write and photograph this book, I couldn't do that. Not only because, of course, I had to keep my distance, and also because people were much more nervous and afraid than in the past, which is also true, but also the simple fact that the streets were very, very empty. So I was photographing the city in a different way. For me, it was almost like um, urban landscape photography, shooting empty streets, buildings, completely empty subway stations, completely empty subway cars. That was probably, I would say really, honestly, that was probably the spookiest experience of all for me. And I avoided it for a while because I was kind of nervous about going down into the subways. And I didn't even intend to take a subway, though they were running. But I thought, I've got to capture this. I went down to one on 14th Street and it was just empty at rush hour. And And I purposely went at what would normally be rush hour, like 530 maybe three people in the entire station and went into an idling L train car that was about to go. And there was one other person in the entire line of cars. And in the car that I photographed, there was no one. So it was pretty spooky. And then I went into other stations after that same day and in subsequent weeks. And it was, it was the same. It was really like a sci-fi experience. Yeah, it's really incredible. And you can see the pictures in the book of that subway car if you care to examine it. Yeah, the cover of the book is a totally empty street, nearly empty anyway. Is this the road you live on? Yeah, this is 8th Avenue. And um, I think the very first photograph in the book is taken in December 2019, so just December of last year. The normal view from my apartment of 8th Avenue and it's traffic clogged. I was very used to and actually found quite beautiful this site of 8th Avenue, just packed with cars, a sea of red lights, what I've described as a Milky Way, a red Milky Way on the streets of Manhattan, just red brake lights and traffic lights from here to Central Park South. So that's the first picture you see from December 2019. And then that's followed by 8th Avenue, completely empty of cars in April of this year. And I did that a little bit throughout the book where there are some pre-pandemic photographs as well as the photographs taken during the pandemic. I wanted to give the reader a sense of how quickly things changed overnight, 
how it was here in the village and here in New York just last summer. So there's a photograph, for example, taken on Gay Pride Day, June 30th of last summer. A very joyous picture of a bunch of kids gathered on a stoop not far from where I live. There's a girl who's kind of dancing and they just look like they're having a party and they're having a blast. And on that same day in 2020, the streets of the village, the cobblestone streets were just empty. And of course there wasn't a parade. So um, I really wanted to give a sense of what we've lost so quickly, remind people to appreciate what we had and what we have today even. I think one of the great lessons of this pandemic is to really consider what you value most in your daily life. You know, what do you miss? What, and until what next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. In order to rebuild and recover. Do you have a vision of what you hope the future is like when this is over? Uh, it might be too early to tell since we have no idea how much longer we're in for this. But It is a little early, but it certainly has been encouraging to see how quickly things have gotten better here. But it's a different New York, for sure. When we emerge from this, finally, and I think it may take years, I think it will be a different New York. I think it will depend upon a vaccine or a very effective treatment, or vaccines, plural. I don't know, you know, someone described living in New York, I think accurately, you have a sense almost of like an archeological dig where there are parts of the city or just buildings, let's say, or streets that seem from the 19th century or the early 20th century or from the 1950s or the 70s and you feel it and see it and sense it throughout the city, they're almost like these layers of history. I think we will very much sense that as we emerge from the pandemic and see this time, however long it lasts, as yet another layer in this archeological dig. Bill Hayes is the author of How We Live Now, Scenes from the Pandemic. I love this book so much, thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for having me. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for listening. Our logo is designed by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory, with help from our muse, Caravaggio. Lori Lee Elliott manages The Bittersweet Life on YouTube. We have a brand new newsletter. If you want to hear what we're reading and thinking about once a month, let us know by sending an email to bittersweetlife at mail.com, and we'll put you on the list. And some of you write us the most beautiful emails. If you haven't already, leave us a review as well on your podcast app. Your support is vital to the show, so whether you send in a financial contribution at thebittersweetlife.net or spread the word about the show to your friends or through your social media by writing an article or doing an interview with us, we appreciate your support. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for keeping this show going. Take care, be safe, talk soon.